Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. <clears throat> Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Hejumia, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. He had healed many people that day, so all the sick people eagerly pushed forward to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of them, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he'd wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. So he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, who can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside, sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who, got, who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Good morning, Refuge. It's good to be able to open up God's word again week after week and just share with you how the Lord is speaking to me and uh, directing us through this gospel of Mark. This morning... What we're looking at is really how the Bible is a story about a cosmic conflict. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, that is what this conflict concerns. And this conflict is first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 2, where directly after humanity had committed this treason against God, remember there that they sided with the serpent, they listened to him, they disobeyed God's one command that he had given them. They ate of the fruit, 
they rebelled against God and they fell into sin and condemnation. Well, it's there right in that same passage that God declares that the seed of the one woman, a descendant from her, would crush the head of the serpent, but in doing so would bruise his own heel. And for the rest of the biblical story, we see these two kingdoms clashing again and again. And so the gospel of Mark is really set within that same context, the context of a cosmic conflict. And we might even say that the gospel of Mark is the climax of this conflict. You remember from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we see the heavens being torn open and the spirit of God rushing upon Jesus, anointing him and driving him into the wilderness to face off with the devil. From there, Jesus returns victorious. He has bound Satan. He has overcome him. And he comes then into the region of Galilee and he says, the kingdom of God is here. Turn and believe or give your allegiance to the kingdom of God. And then in the scenes directly following this, we see Jesus demonstrating the power of God's kingdom. And he's confronting sin and sickness, disease, and the kingdom of darkness as he cleanses a demonized man from an unclean spirit. Now, Mark's gospel more than any other gospel actually, pictures a world filled with demonic power and presence. Uh, this shows up again and again in Mark's gospel and actually outshadows the other gospel writers in this category. So Mark's gospel is truly set in the midst of this cosmic conflict in which Jesus has come to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and bring humanity into his good kingdom. And in our passage this morning, I know it's a long passage and it's kind of hard to see how all of these stories connect, but I really believe that they do. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus once again confronting and plundering the kingdom of darkness. It says as he continues his ministry in Galilee, whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw themselves to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Now, this is this weird transition here, or strange transition. It doesn't really make sense to us. But Jesus is here showing his power over the kingdom of darkness. And in the next scene, we find Jesus going up on a mountain and calling to him those whom it says he desired to be with him. And from there, he appoints 12 disciples so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to herald or preach the good news about God's kingdom being here, and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, there are some things to mention here, I think, that will give us some insight as we seek to understand Mark's purpose and teaching about what it means to be Jesus's disciples. And I think the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is here with a new mission and a new identity for humanity. Now, Jesus ascending a mountain and from there appointing 12 men, it should be significant to us who know our Bibles. Uh, it's like a hyperlink taking us back to Moses who ascended the mountain of God and there received the law of God and consecrated the children of Israel as the people of God. 
The 12 disciples here are symbolic of Israel's 12 tribes. So Jesus is signaling to any who, has, who have eyes to see that he, like Moses, is consecrating a new Israel under his authority, this authority to cast out demons, this authority over the kingdom of darkness to do this kingdom of work excuse me, this kingdom work of storming and plundering the kingdom of darkness. So we have a new Israel or a new humanity with a new mission. Now I've mentioned throughout our teachings that Mark's gospel is about being a disciple of Jesus. And we see this pattern within this gospel, how the first disciples were with Jesus they learned to become like Jesus. They followed his patterns. He taught them to do what he did. And then he sends them out in order to do what he did. And we can clearly see that in his, in, excuse me, in this passage. Jesus calls the 12 to be with him. And then he sends them out to do what he had been doing, which was preaching, heralding the kingdom of God, and casting out demons. So Jesus invites his followers into his own mission to declare God's reign and to storm the kingdom of darkness, to rescue men and women who have been held captive by Satan and his demonic forces. This is the mission that Jesus sends his disciples on. Now, I think the question is, well, who's called to this mission, right? Well, reading Mark, we should conclude that all disciples are called to this mission. Many times when we think about church, we think about the mission of God, often we think that this is what people who are called to the ministry, as we call it, are to do. But when we look at the New Testament, we find that it is actually church leaders, elders, pastors, prophets, evangelists, apostles, and teachers who equip the saints to do the work of the ministry or to fulfill Jesus's mission. So really, it's all disciples that are called to this mission and in a variety of ways. Here in our passage, the 12 disciples, they're symbolic of all disciples and they're contrasted with the crowd. They're contrasted with the religious leaders and even Jesus's blood family who in this scenario do not follow him and actually are resisting his ministry true disciples followers of jesus jesus's new family community as he calls it they are marked by doing god's will or also called taking up jesus's mission now <clears throat> i would like to note something that really stood out to me as i was studying this passage and that is that it's interesting to note who is in this group of disciples called to take up Jesus's mission. Sometimes when we're looking at lists of names in the Bibles, it's easy to blow over them. But it's, it's fascinating when we just step back and kind of search the details that are given in these lists of names. So we find these lists of names all throughout the Gospels, right? We find uh, people probably that we're familiar with, part of Jesus' inner circle, and their different personalities, occupations, and even political affiliations within this group. Some of them are familiar to us, and others maybe aren't so familiar, like Bartholomew. Who the heck is that guy, right? But Peter, John, Andrew, Philip, even Matthew, or his other name, Levi, these are familiar to us. But I want to highlight two individuals within this disciple group. Mark mentions here two characters that come from vastly, and I would even say polarized camps. First, we have Levi, the tax collector. Remember, 
months ago, we talked about Jesus calling Levi to be his disciple and what controversy that got brought to Jesus because Levi, the tax collector, was considered a Roman defector. He was considered a traitor to the nation of Israel. So we have him in Jesus' inner circle. And on the far other side, the end of the spectrum, we have this man, Simon the Zealot or the Canaanian. Scholars agree that the Canaanian or Zealot is a term associated with the Israelite dagger men. And these guys, this group, was a group of just zealots for Israel who planned the overthrow of Roman tyranny over the nation of Israel. They were responsible for many seditious, bloody uprisings and so-called messianic movements. And yet, here, these two men are with Jesus. They're in his group of disciples. But here's the thing to note. They aren't there representing their political party. They aren't there to represent their ideology. Here, these two men are not there with their agenda, the Jewish defector Christian or the Christian zealot. They have laid these aside. They've laid aside these identities. They've laid aside these affiliations. And they have taken on a new identity. Who are they? They are Jesus' disciples. They're the 12. They've taken on a new mission. We're told that they are the ones that Jesus called apostles, the ones that he sends in his name and with his authority. So in this new humanity and mission that Jesus is calling disciples into, we see that people now are not the enemy. The Romans are not the enemy in this scenario. The Jews are not necessarily the good guys in this scenario. People are not the enemy. They are captives and victims of the kingdom of darkness. Those old categories that we might have had before we met Jesus, before we became his disciples, those are gone. Those must be laid aside, and Jesus' mission must take precedent over everything else. The mission, again, is to bring the presence and power of the kingdom of God to bear upon the kingdom of darkness. Church, it's fascinating when we realize that there are many political parties in Jesus's day. There were the Sadducees, right? These were the religious liberals who had sold out to the Romans. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They are done with all that stuff, and they used the religion of the Jews as, as a you know, political power play in their favor. We had the Pharisees. Remember, they were this self-appointed religious group. They went around and they made sure that everybody was in line because they believed through their holiness that they would bring about the messianic reign, the deliverance of God. We had the Herodians, those who think that Herod is the guy that's going to bring in, uh, you know, a golden age or kingdom. We have the Romans or even those who hit the cultural eject button like the Essenes at Qumran. But Jesus doesn't affiliate or cozy up with any of them. He is on a different mission. And he has a different politic. He has a kingdom politic. 
He's here for the redemption and restoration of humanity. He's here to destroy and plunder the kingdom of darkness. And his mission concerns the establishment of the kingdom of God and the redemption of the human race. Now that same mission continues today to establish the kingdom of God, to show through our lives, through our words, through our deeds that God reigns and rules and that the kingdom of darkness is coming to an end. But Satan and the kingdom of darkness have a subversive strategy against the kingdom of God. And I think this is something that we need to talk about as well in this passage. So for those of you that love alliteration, I titled this section of the sermon, Satan's Subversive Strategy. You're welcome. In this passage and all throughout Mark's gospel, Satan's kingdom is being plundered. This is Jesus's explanation for his power over demons. Remember, there were many exorcists in Jesus' day, but Jesus had this incredible authority. We just read the demons would catch his eye and begin just losing it, falling to the ground and going into seizures because they had seen Jesus. He had authority over them. He was different than the exorcist of his day. And so the religious leaders claim that this must be because Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. Jesus explains rather that this logic is illogical and that if this was the case, Satan is attacking his own kingdom and tearing it apart. And Jesus actually has a much more biblical explanation for what's going on. And this is very interesting because he's talking with those who would have been the biblical scholars of the day. He says, Satan is like a strong man who is able to keep his goods safe from those who might try to plunder them. But Jesus implies that he is the stronger man who has bound Satan and begun to plunder his goods. We might not see it because we don't know Greek and we don't, you, most of us don't read our Bibles in the original language. But the language Jesus uses here is again another hyperlink that would have taken these biblical scholars the scribes to a passage in Isaiah. I want to read it to you. God speaking through Isaiah says this, who can snatch the plunder of war from the hands of a warrior? Who can demand that a tyrant let his captives go? But the Lord says the captives of warriors will be released and the plunder of tyrants will be retrieved for I will fight those who fight you and I will save your children. This part's creepy. I will feed your enemies with their own flesh and they will be drunk with rivers of their own blood. All the world will know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Israel. We come again to Mark's gospel, and what we find is that as Jesus is interacting with the crowd and the religious leaders, everyone is faced again with this question, who is Jesus? Where does this power come from? And, and they're faced with this question. Either we have, we settle on this totally illogical explanation for Jesus's power, or we search the scriptures and realize that what's happening is that God is present and that he himself is 
fighting against those who are fighting them. And he is saving those who have kept, excuse me, he is saving those who have been kept in prison and in slavery. So again, Mark, he puts it to us, he puts it to the reader, he puts it to the audience. Who is Jesus? Far from Jesus being possessed by the prince of demons then, right? Jesus kind of flips this thing upside down. These scribes are resisting the plundering of the kingdom of darkness. The question is, whose side are these scribes on? Who are the ones being influenced by demons here? But I want to I say this, just because Satan is overcome by Jesus, as we see it all throughout uh, the Gospel of Mark, Satan is bound, Jesus is plundering those whom he has taken captive. This doesn't stop Satan combating Jesus' work. Satan, I think, knows that he cannot meet Jesus head on. He tried that in the wilderness, and he could not stand before him. Jesus stood firmly on God's word and under the Father's authority. And so, Satan begins this campaign of disinformation and propaganda. It's not blatant, right? It's not a direct coming against horns or whatever, you know, we think of when we think of Satan, you know, just like rearing his evil face. It's not like that, no, but it is subversive. It is seeking to undo and come against the work of Jesus. And we can see this as Jesus' family come and declare that he is out of his mind. How, just like the devil, how like Satan, to use those who are closest to us, to tear us down, to discourage us, to come against us. That's what he does here to Jesus. His family, who Jesus was the oldest brother, right? He would have taken care of his family. And here they are. They come against him and they declare he's out of his mind. Who does he think he is acting like Moses? Who does he think he is appointing 12 followers? We know what you're saying, Jesus. We know what you're doing. You've lost your mind. Who do you think you are? And I wonder if we ever consider the emotional and psychological effect this would have had on Jesus. You know, the devil often plays with a psychological warfare. He battles us in our minds with our thoughts. He seeks to discourage us. He seeks to instill fear within us, pressure within us. And we see him doing that here with Jesus. His own family rejects his claims, dismisses his power and authority. But it's not just that. We also have the scribes who come down from Jerusalem. This is significant in Mark's gospel. Jesus ascends the mountain. He has authority. The scribes come down from Jerusalem. The question is, where is the mountain that has the authority? We don't have time to talk about that. Maybe I'll do an Instagram video on it. I don't know. Who knows? But what's going on here is the scribes come down from Jerusalem, and this is like biblical scholars, or excuse me, this is like scholars coming from Harvard or Yale to listen to your lecture and critique you. So the the scribes come down from Jerusalem, right? Biblical scholars coming from the seat of religious authority. And these scribes held so much weight and authority in this shame and honor society. They could lift you up or they could absolutely destroy you, destroy your reputation, your family reputation. 
And it's these leaders of the nation, these influencers, who come against Jesus saying that he's possessed by the prince of demons. And that is why he has this power at work in him. And again, imagine the psychological warfare going on here. And I wonder, again, if in this moment, Jesus was tempted to back down a bit. He was tempted to stop ruffling so many feathers and just to go quietly with his family. To not bring shame and dishonor to the family name or reputation. But what we see, who knows what was going on in Jesus' mind. But we see Jesus here, calm and collected. Jesus is bold and unflinching. And he will not be dissuaded from his mission to rescue humanity from the kingdom of darkness and to transfer them into the kingdom of light. Now, I bring up this point of Satan's subversive strategy to remind us that we have a real enemy. We do. We have an enemy who is lurking everywhere. And I am not someone who is hypersensitive to the spiritual realm. I'm not one of those people who thinks, you know, that demons behind everything or that everything is spiritual warfare. But the reality is, is that the biblical world is a world of cosmic conflict. It is a world of darkness and light. It is a world of angels and demons. It is a world where humanity hangs in the balance between the two, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And so I bring up this point to show that Satan is at work in the world. He's sowing lies and hatred. He's sowing jealousy and fear, suspicion and prejudice. And he loves nothing more than to get God's people to doubt our true identity, our calling and mission as disciples of Jesus, to doubt its power to doubt its potency, to doubt its relevance, to doubt its truth. I mean, honestly, how many of you in this season where, you know, we're looking at dealing with COVID and it's been so long, how many of us are questioning what, where is the power of the gospel? Where is the presence of Jesus? How does this, you know, is, how is this brought to bear upon our situation? How does the gospel speak into what's going on in our country between the protest and the police. Where is the power? Where's authority? Where's the relevance of all of this? I know I've been tempted. I know that I've like doubted these things and just questioned. Satan would love for us to be distracted by anything that would take our focus off of the kingdom of God and God's rescue. He'd love nothing more than to see the church actually resisting and even working against the kingdom of God. As we see here, the religious leaders coming against Jesus, his own family coming against him. As I said, I don't believe that I'm someone who is hypersensitive to demonic activity, but I will say, unless you have a belief in and an understanding of the devil, the demonic realm, and the kingdom of darkness, you will look at the world you will see these different scenarios that are going on and you will, be, you will begin to make people the enemy. You will tend to make people the enemy rather than seeing the power that is behind the evil that is going on in this world. Seeing the power that is influencing, enslaving, and often controlling people. 
As in this story, people are pawns that Satan uses. Satan's continual influence has implications for human beings, right? Because people choose sides in the conflict of these two kingdoms. And they choose it by their response to the person, the power, and authority of Jesus. This is something that we need to be aware of. Those of us who call ourselves disciples, that we are entering a war zone, that we are entering a conflict, and there is a real enemy, but he is a spiritual enemy. He's a power behind the power. People are not the enemy, but they are those who need to be rescued. So how do we engage then in this conflict, in this mission of Jesus? Well, it's, as we've been saying throughout Mark's teaching, Mark's gospel, it's a whole life engagement. Disciples were called to be with Jesus and then sent out by Jesus. And so I think the first step is recognizing my own discipleship to Jesus as my true identity and primary calling and then beginning to live that out before the watching world. Living out, as we have talked a lot about at Refuge, living out the way of Jesus into every sphere, that we don't make the mistake that people have made in the past of compartmentalizing our lives and keeping our, you know, spirituality, uh, you know, in this box of, oh, this is sacred, and keeping our work and our family life as, oh, well, this is secular, and this is what I do with my time, but it's a whole life discipleship to Jesus, and we bring that to bear upon the world. That our primary question as followers of Jesus is, what would Jesus do if he lived my life? If like these disciples, we have been with Jesus and he's rubbing off on our lives, we will become more like him and our lives will provoke questions. Because the normal categories, especially in our culture, of liberal and conservative or religious or secular, they won't fit. And and like I said before, Jesus, he doesn't fit the categories of his day. He doesn't cozy up with any of these because Jesus is here on a mission from God who is both more liberal and more conservative than we can possibly imagine because he is the Lord of both the sacred and the secular. You know, a good test for my life when I know that I am living out my, my discipleship to Jesus is when I receive the response from people in our city, in our county, you aren't like any Christian I've ever met. You know what I think in my head? Praise God. <laughs> Because I know what they're saying, right? It's like this response, oh, I can't believe in the God of the Bible. And it's like, well, tell me the God that you think is in the Bible. And chances are we probably agree, probably neither of us believe in that God, right? And unfortunately, we have such a misrepresentation of who God is, and we have such a misrepresentation even by the church of who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower. And so when people have that response, you aren't like any Christian I've ever met. Usually what they're saying is there's compassion, there's humility, there's kindness, there's an approachability. There isn't this holier-than-thou, hypocritical, pharisaical type of posture. And goodness, that is what our world needs. People like Jesus who are compassionate to those who are suffering 
compassionate to those who come from just dysfunctional backgrounds and who have been victims or even who have oppressed because they were victims and so on and so forth. When we live lives like Jesus, this way of life provokes questions to which Jesus, the good news of God's rescue, the judgment of evil, and the restoration of all things are the answer. Our questionable lives give us that opportunity to share the good news of the love and rescue of God in each context with each individual. So I've been asking this recently, and I'll ask it again. Is our love, is our mercy, is our compassion, our forgiveness, our response to violence and evil, our response to slander and criticism so different that people question it? that it challenges the status quo. Do we live those questionable lives that show that we have been with Jesus? This is part of what it means to be on Jesus's mission, to reach people who are far from God, to bring them close to God through our questionable lives, to provoke those questions through our questionable lives, but also good works, deeds of justice and mercy. You know, the Beatitudes and the fruits of the Spirit. Remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? You know, we're reading through these, and they are so countercultural, even to this day. They are the exact opposite of the way human beings function. But according to Scripture, this is how we confront spiritual darkness and wickedness. But the question I I often ask, again, is the relevance. Do they really? Do these characteristics, do these values and principles, these virtues really, really confront the kingdom of darkness? Do they really do damage to Satan and his demonic plans? They seem so soft and ineffective. It's true. It does seem that way. In our human thinking, it seems that way, and I believe that it's because the human way is actually the demonic way. It's the way of the kingdom of darkness, which is always violence and force. Paul the Apostle reminds us, and I'm speaking directly here to the church, he reminds us that the weapons with which we fight are not weapons that the world uses. And yet, they are mighty because they are weapons from God. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, and we knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and we destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. This is incredible. The weapons of our warfare are kindness and mercy. I mean, this is like, like, what are we in preschool? You know, just like the way that we think as humans, this is so antithetical to the way we wait, the way we think, and yet this is the power of God. It's the power of God displayed in weakness. It is the same power that we see there on the cross where Jesus is crucified in weakness, and yet there he nails the principalities and powers to the cross. He triumphs over them, and he makes a mockery of them. That 
is power. And Jesus calls us to that same power, power through weakness, power through humility, power through mercy and compassion. These are the weapons that will tear down the strongholds of evil in our city, in our community, in our county, in our world. My mom recently started a new podcast, and uh, in this podcast, her and a friend, they're trying to expose the Christian community to this rich heritage we have of godly, faithful Christian missionary women. And I love this. My mom is so passionate about exposing the church to this rich heritage we have of women leaders. So all this to say, uh, maybe some you've heard of, some you haven't, you might want to check out her podcast. But in a recent episode, she was talking about a woman named Evelyn Granny Brand. And this woman, her and her husband, they began a ministry in India and they were bringing education and medical supplies to some of the, um, you know, rural uh, parts of the country. And they were building roads and they were trying to you know, connect the poor to some of the major cities and, you know, bring economy to them and these things. For seven years, they went without making a single convert to Christianity. And during this period, there was a Swami, a Hindu priest, and he was spreading terrible rumors about them in the community. And so all of a sudden, they're under all this suspicion. None of the villagers trust them. They're being actively opposed because of all the work that the Swami is doing. He even tried to kill them multiple times. Once he lit their house on fire, I believe it was while they were sleeping in the middle of the night, trying to kill them. But this is incredible. They responded again and again to this man and his threats with forgiveness and kindness. And so this is what happens. Over time, this same priest develops this fever and he gets like super ill. And no one else in the village, he's been this religious spiritual leader in that village. No one else in the village will go and visit him. They won't be with him. They won't care for him. But Evelyn and her husband, they go to him and they nurse him as he is dying. And this is what happens. This is what he says. This God... This Jesus must be the true God because only you and your husband will care for me in my dying. And the, the story is that this man gave his life to Jesus because he saw this kindness, this tenderness, this power and weakness through Evelyn and through her husband. And actually what ends up happening is that he gives his children to Evelyn and her husband to raise them in the fear of the Lord, to be followers of Jesus. It's this incredible story. And what happens is that people begin to examine these people's lives and the teaching of Jesus. And this revival breaks out and many people begin to follow Jesus. Following Jesus and being his disciple is not easy. It goes against the grain of our sinful nature that wants revenge, that wants to take down the kingdom of darkness with violence, that, that wants to confront evil with evil, darkness with darkness. We have to learn from Jesus as his disciples to sit under his teaching, to sit under his person, how to be gracious, how to forgive, how to turn the other cheek and not repay evil for evil, how to endure suffering righteously how to live out power through weakness 
our engagement in this cosmic conflict that we're called to, this mission of Jesus, is costly engagement, right? Simply look at Jesus. Consider what it cost him, rejection from his family, pressure from the religious leaders. In the end, he dies friendless, he dies penniless, he dies alone, crucified in weakness, spit in his face, beard torn out. Look what it cost Jesus to bring us from light excuse me, from, to bring us from darkness to light, what it cost him to destroy the works and power of Satan so he could set us free and bring us into his kingdom. And so church, in closing, may God help us to not be distracted or deceived from the true identity and mission that Jesus has given to his disciples. And that is to be these signs, these questionable lives of the kingdom of God, these lives that provoke question, these countercultural lives that cause people to draw near to Jesus, that bring them out of darkness and out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ under his authority, sent out to do the same. Let's pray as we close that the Lord will bring us back, that the Holy Spirit will bring us back. If we've strayed, if we've forgotten, if we've got distracted, let's do that. Let's ask now, Holy Spirit, come, light our hearts. As we often sing, bring our hearts back to you. Lead us, Lord, into your path that is righteousness. Lead us into your path that is justice. Lead us into your path that is mercy. And Lord, would we do all of this in the way of Jesus, in humility, with compassion, with mercy and kindness, with forgiveness. Help us, Lord, that we would not live a Christianity that cost us nothing, but that we would follow Jesus in his costly engagement in this conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And that, Lord, as we count the cost, as we follow Jesus, our crucified Lord, that we would see many, many who would be brought from darkness to your light. We'd see many brought out from the tyranny and enslavement of the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Son of your love. Jesus, you are worthy. Lord, may your name be known through our lives, through the church in this county. Lord, in this time, in this season, Lord, where there is so much confusion, Lord, where there is panic and fear, disenfranchisement and disillusion would people turn to you and Lord would we be those billboards those signs to point to you and to your kingdom lead us Jesus lead us Holy Spirit we pray amen